Good evening, good evening, and good evening. I am Angelus, and this is the very first podcast for Storyboard. I have decided to branch out into putting my voice on the air or on the ether, as the case may be. And I don't know where this is going to go. I want to start recording and have a habit of recording. Obviously, my craft will evolve as time goes on. But until then, I'm going to be experimenting a little bit here and there with the formula. Today, I am going to limit to two segments. The first one, I'm going to address a controversy brought up by James Hudson relating to prototype copies and their potential or shouldn't sale. And then I want to discuss the hype backlash that I am seeing for Blood in the Clock Tower, which is currently on Kickstarter. So without much further ado, here we go. Segment number one. A recent controversy was brought to Facebook board game groups by James Hudson from Druid City Games. He responded to the observation that a prototype copy had been found for sale and purchase on the secondary market, meaning a reviewer had acquired a prototype copy of a game and then had sold it on to someone in the public. Uh, And there were a number of concerns raised about this, and it raises two large questions. The broad question is, who owns the review copy of a game? And subsidiary to that and more narrow is what is the appropriate handling of a prototype copy of a game? Now, while these are very interrelated questions, they are actually two distinct points. And I'm going to try and address both of them. Now, I undertook some preliminary research on this topic, and it's not a very easy question to answer. There are some broad legal and ethical uh, positions on topics in this area, but many of them are hampered by the non-conventional style of modern board game media. So many of the assumptions that we might make of traditional media maybe don't apply well to the non-traditional media of board game circuits. Particularly, traditional media, many of the protocols were developed in part because journalists are employees of media corporations, and largely their obligations to the public and partners, publishers, is at least informed by the professionality of that role. Conversely, board game media is largely an amateur enterprise. It's mostly formed from voluntary individuals or otherwise it is self-funded. And in many instances, it falls out of the conventional categories that traditional journalism ascribes to. So while I think we can look to traditional journalism ethics for information, I don't think we can consider them binding positions in the same way. And a big part of it is because of the consequence of the internet democratizing modern storytelling and journalism. Now, on top of that, the board game industry itself is something of a circle of friends. There are a number of fine lines where business separates pleasure, but there are also some very large overlaps. Most people in the industry know each other, and this means a lot of the relationships between publishers and media are ad hoc and only built upon implied standards. So let's get to that broader question. It's kind of the most ambiguous, but it's also the question with the smallest amount of stakes. Largely what we're talking about is the freelance disposition of board game media, and this means that publishers develop soft relationships with key individuals and then provide them copies of the game for the purposes of a review. Now, the outstanding question is whether this copy should be considered a gift. If it is a gift, 
then the law and the ethics of it is pretty clear. The owner of that is free to sell it on, move it on, destroy it, do whatever it is. It is theirs in right and purpose. However, the law usually requires some declaration of intent. And in most cases, the intent of whether this is a gift is only implied, never explicitly stated. And so the broad question is whether a reasonable person looking at these types of interactions could infer that this is a gift. Now, imprudence, reviewers probably should be seeking this clarification from publishers. I think the generally accepted standard is that they are by practice gifts. I think we can look to the way that publishers allow the reviewers to enjoy private benefit of the game after the fact that a reviewers had. We can look to the fact that re- publishers almost never request a return of a review copy or any further instruction beyond that. And I think also this is partly informed because a copy once played doesn't really have the same retail value. More than half of its value has been depreciated by that point. So we can look at all of these and say, well, there is a convention within the board games industry whereby review copies are regarded as gifts. Now, these questions are obviously not tested in a court of law. I highly doubt that they would just because the stakes and the liability is so low. And you might well ask, well, what does it matter then? Where it matters is I think it is a good practice for reviewers and in fact for publishers to move away from the implicit and get to the explicit, partly because the board game reviewer media do not have the same backgrounding in journalistic ethics that others might. And this is where it conflicts with another aspect of journalistic ethics, Normally, in journalism, you should never accept a gift uh, as a means of consideration. But I think the practice of gifting these games is part of the blueprint of that relationship. Now, I'm aware that there is the concern that the gifting of a game creates particular bias. And in fact, Amazon itself has removed the capacity for incentivized reviews to go up, i.e. reviews that are the consequence of a gift of the product, largely because they find them too positively biased. In the board game media circuit, I think there is a, a sufficient difference, and maybe I say this being biased as a person myself, but we are put in a much stronger position to ground our relationship to the game with rationale, a report to the experience, and a more methodical analysis of the game than perhaps many other uh, reviewers of general goods on Amazon, for example. And I think the correct comparison is more to arts media critics. So it is a bit of a complicated question. And I guess my point of advice is that it is good practice both for publishers and for reviewers to clarify the intent of the object and, where possible, get that in writing. Now, as a practice, I actually have it on my website that a condition of me receiving a review copy of a game is that it is considered a gift. And one of the practical reasons for this is I live in Australia. And if I am to perhaps assume the liability of returning a game, then I actually don't want to take that on board. I don't want to have to worry about shipping a game back, especially effectively a secondhand game. I will, of course, return a game if I don't open it and don't get around to reviewing it. 
but that's a different case. Now onto the more specific question of prototypes. I actually think we do need to treat this as a separate and a special case because we're not talking about uh, a general object available. I actually think in the instance of a prototype copy, we can look more towards things like non-disclosure agreements, more towards the industry being protective of these copies. The main complaint from publishers is that a prototype copy is an unfinished product. And while they trust media personalities to frame that properly, without that framing, it represents the game in a way that they have no quality control over. And this can be particularly concerning for publishers that make high quality, uh, lavishly deluxe games. One of the interesting tells about this was the discussion where in the groups where this happened, and you could see people aligning to being highly protective of prototypes versus a more casual relationship to prototypes, roughly equivalent to how costly the prototype was. And I think there is a translation of emotional and personal investment into prototypes. The thing to remember is prototypes are probably in terms of labor and materials, 10 times the cost of a, a general game. And that's just the nature of them being bespoke objects. Now, because of these, I, again, I think the reasonable assumption is that prototype copies should be regarded as loans. But that being said, I think it is the onus should be upon publishers to clarify that because they do stand as an exception for what I think is the established assumption that review copies are gifts. I think in any kind of media and packaging, even with established uh, reviewers, there should be some kind of written statement saying, you know, upon completion of review, we would like the reviewer to, et cetera, et cetera. There is very little effort required from both publishers and reviewers to clarify the intent of an object. And more important than covering legal liability on this, I think it is just a good practice to ensure that you have a good working relationship with publishers. They are reciprocal relationships that are kind of unique to the board game community rather than antagonistic as might be in other kind of critical circles. So to summarize... I think there is a general assumption that a published copy of a game once given to a reviewer is considered a gift. I think prototype copies fall under a special category that should be considered loans. But in all cases, it is good practice for both publishers and reviewers to clarify that intent. I'm going to take a moment to talk about Blood on the Clock Tower, which is currently live on Kickstarter and enjoying a modicum of success. When I last checked it, it was over 550% funded. So when I talk about this, I'm not trying to encourage you to go and fund it yourself. I feel people are able to do that in their own way, but also to recognize that it's already funded and successful. So my commentary here is less of an encouragement and more an observation. For me, what is particularly interesting is observing some of the backlash that has come in response to Clock Tower. 
And this is unsurprising because every single game, when it receives a certain amount of hype, happened with Pandemic Legacy, it happened with Gloomhaven, provokes a reaction from the board game community. And part of this is because we are constantly saturated in hype. And so we build up a level of cynicism and skepticism to hype, especially in the instance of this, when it comes from a designer that is actually unknown. Certainly, the skepticism reached a crescendo and a peak when Shut Up and Sit Down released their review and Quinns stated that it was his favorite game of all time. I am in a similar position, interestingly enough. I have been with Clock Tower for the last two years, being a participant and running games and as a storyteller. I have seen behind the curtain and studied and observed the evolution of the late phases of the game. And so I appreciate exactly where Quinns is coming from. And certainly in uh, 2017 and most of 2018, Clock Tower was the game I obsessively played. And I think within the space of a year, I clocked over 200 games. Now, consider that an average game is about 90 minutes. That represents more than half of the gaming time I played in that period. Now, I'm normally a game browser. I like to move from game to game to game, but there was, at least for me, enough variety and diversity and experimentality in the game that it kept me going. So what was interesting is one of the initial points of skepticism seems to be that this is just super werewolf. And that's a very understandable conception. I appreciate that some people are just going to go into it. Maybe they'll play the basic edition of Trouble Brewing. That's all they see. And if that's all they see, it's incredibly understandable to think that, yes, this is just, you know, super werewolf. However, the design process of Blood and the Clock Tower certainly departed from that in its early to mid phase. In fact, Stephen Medway's original design intent was complete antipathy to well, if it just didn't do enough and his internal process was, well, how can I fix it? And I believe Clock Tower has arrived at a point that ultimately fixes most of the things I did not enjoy about Wealth as well. Notably, the biggest change and the simplest change was the structure of allowing dead players to continue participating all the way to the end, especially with the ghost votes that they get, which bring the game to a massive climax. Where I think Clock Tower makes a significant distinction is when you start looking at the alternate scripts, such as Sex and Violets and Bad Moon Rising. While Trouble Brewing does feel very familiar and very vanilla in terms of what Clock Tower adds, it's the interesting twists and turns that you start seeing in the alternate scripts. And more importantly, because I was part of the divine and the development of the late phase of the game, I got to see some of the tested scripts, uh, which I'm not sure if I can talk about, but I have seen alternate ideas. And so even looking at three scripts, which are currently being available, I can say that it's only a third of the potential of what Clock Tower gave to me in that period of time. There's over 200 characters, and I've seen all sorts of experimental scripts with those combinations to really strange and interesting interactions. I guess for me, the excitement of Clock Tower was always discovering some of these interactions. And some of my favorite moments was discovering certain interactions which effectively broke 
particular characters. Uh, I have a very fond memory of getting to a point where I was like, here is the pit hag. As it is written, if the pit hag is alive in the final five, I can guarantee a win for evil. And I wrote about five different scenarios where the pit hag, as it was written then, could achieve these uh, unblockable victories. Now, of course, that wasn't fun. And so the pit hag had to be changed to how it is today. But anyway, I digress. My point being is while Trouble Brewing, which is the basic and introductory script, does feel like a close cousin to sort of werewolf, it is only the beginning. It is really only the tip of the iceberg to the experiences that I have had with Blood and the Clock Tower. What I also think is really interesting is we're getting a batch of people who aren't normally board game players to show strong fervor for this game. And this has proved concerning for a lot of prospective buyers and Kickstarters because these are effectively people that aren't as immersed into the community as some of these critics and reviewers might want. But to me, I think that's actually really good because we now have a game that is drawing people into gaming where otherwise traditional tabletop board games might not. And I know from the Sydney crowd, there are a number of people who aren't board gamers, but they love this game. And that's in some ways due to the fact it is within the social deduction genre. I also think the fact that it is a social deduction game is where a lot of people get misled. Typically, we look at social deduction games as being light party experiences. They all offer sweet 20-minute experiences, not much of a rule set, and it is very big emphasis on that social analysis. Where Clock Tower changes that is it is a heavy game. Uh, currently on Board Game Geek, the average rating is 3.2 out of 5. And I've tried to explain that as Clock Tower is a full-on live-action parlor game with social deduction elements. And I think if you go into it thinking of it more as a deep murder mystery game that borrows lightly from social deduction, you arrive at a better understanding of what the experience of Clock Tower is and why people find it so compelling. Additionally, I appreciate that some people find themselves lost in the puzzle. Clock Tower is designed so that there are no 100% certainties. By the time you get to that final day, you should have at least two competing theories for who the demon is. Otherwise, there is no suspense. There is no dramatic decision. There is no outcome that is Incorrect. There is just a very clear path to victory for one team. And I think that would lose a lot of what Clock Tower offers. That being said, I appreciate that the ambiguity, the uncertainty, and the heavy lifting on requiring to puzzle through Clock Tower is in fact what turns off certain people. And you know what? That's fine. That's people's preference for what they like to gain. But this is exactly what allows Clock Tower to stand out from the social deduction genre. So I think I've gone on a lot more longer than I had intended to, but there's been a lot of thoughts that I've had about Clock Tower and just really watching the evolution of the Kickstarter, watching some of the evolutions of the comments online. 
And I just wanted to put those thoughts together in a little bit of a conversation. So here's where I'm at. Thanks.